High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, young amateur effects artists, teenagers just trying to get away for the weekend, horror and slasher fans. This is High School Slumber Party, the podcast where me and some friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and the party's at my place this evening. But first, school is still in session, and we have some homework to chat about. This was your assignment, and I... Would like to see the results. Today is May 28th, and you know what happened on May 28th? May 28th, 1979, was the last day of school for the school in Dazed and Confused. That's when it takes place. So definitely check out our Dazed and Confused episode wherever you get your podcasts. That was a really, really fun one. And speaking of the places you get your podcasts, where are you listening right now? Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Make sure you have that subscribe button hit. Make sure that you give us a positive review and a five-star rating. That's your homework every week. And unfortunately, Slumber, sorry, today is not your last day of school. We run a different calendar than the 70s Texas calendar, okay? The 70s Texas school calendar has nothing on us. But we are approaching the end of our junior year. So a homework assignment I want you to look out for. This is Memorial Day weekend here in the United States, so so happy early Memorial Day. But on Memorial Day, we should finally have our poll out for our superlatives, our yearbook special to end our junior year will be happening soon. So look out for that and vote, vote, vote. More on that on Monday. But before that, we got to talk about today's episode, your Friday episode. And that was Friday the 13th. It might be the 28th, but it's the 13th here on High School Slumber Party. Friday the 13th, the final chapter to be exact. And I had a couple of people ask me online, why doing this one now? Well, first of all, it's not a Halloween movie. It's a summer movie. All these Friday the 13th movies, or at least the ones I'm familiar with, are more summer movies. But second of all, Corey Feldman's in it. It's one of his earlier roles. We are still on our Corey and Corey lap. So you know what that means? The Mikester, Mike Manzi, is here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm in the middle of introducing the guest and you get up? The bell doesn't dismiss you. I dismiss you. Hang on tight for a second. As I said, Mike Manzi is here all the way from Third Time's a Charm, though he's been here way more than he's been there, I feel like. However, he's also from another show, The Monsters That Made Us. So if Mike is my Corey consultant, he brought over his horror consultant. Dan Cologne is back, and we are talking this Friday the 13th movie, Friday the 13th, the final chapter. We'll be talking some Feldman. We'll be talking some horror. We'll be talking everything 
awesome that's in this movie. I want to remind you, though, of the other Corey movies we've done recently, specifically Monday's episode. I hope you did your homework and checked that episode out as well. Remember, guys, you got to watch the movies and you got to do your homework, and the homework is to listen to the episodes. It's a whole cycle, but you get it. What did we even do on Monday? Oh, yeah, Prayer of the Roller Boys. How fun was that movie? A pleasant surprise there. And that one's easy. That one was on YouTube, so retroactively do your homework check out prayer of the roller boys that was a haim today is a feldman and i cannot wait to get into it today so pack your favorite jammies tell your mother sitting up ryan's because we're about to get our party on i leave you with the theme to this movie and i'm gonna play it again at the end too because i love these horror themes class dismissed <laughs> Sounds like he's cheering. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, you've been on so many episodes in a row now that I've noticed you've been preparing openers. You might forget your homework at the end, but but you've been preparing openers. Oh, you're you're just learning that? I've done, I think, eight episodes of our show with Mike, and uh, it's like he's always prepared to have either an impression or uh, a (laughs) one-liner. That's fair. There's always something prepared. (laughs) That's fair. I think that's the the luxury of, of being like, for lack of a better word, like the secondary host, you know, the pressure is off to, you know, to come up with like the intro and, you know, yeah. the structure, you know, Mike can just freewheel it every single time. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Same, same over here. I'm just sort of guesting right now. So the pressure's off and Brian does all the yeah. prep. I just show up with the, with the quips and the one-liners and, and the puns <laughs> and I'm good to go. And we're both getting a little bit delirious of the Corys at this point. That's why uh, Slumber is out there. You hear a third voice with us. Thank, thank the heavens. Thank, thank the Corys. Thank Jason. Because... <laughs> <laughs> or thank Jason down there, too, because uh, we have someone else today. So, Mike, of course, introduce yourself first, and then Dan, follow. All right. So, uh, Mike Manzi, RHS, class of 97, go Maroons. And I'm Dan Colon, Timber Creek High School, class of 2005, go Chargers. And together, we are <laughs> the monsters that made us. <laughs> <laughs> The three of us have come on before for other kinds of horror films on High School Slumber Party, but I think it's a, I think this is the first time you guys are both on in your current Monsters That Made Us form. So congratulations once again on the show and the success of the show and how great it's been so far. I'm sure you guys can plug it later, but just want to get that out of the way that I have both monster hosts with me today. So it's appropriate. Yeah, it's... um. For, for those who aren't familiar with our show, we'll get into it. It's, it's a little more old school, old Hollywood, um, but Mike and I are huge horror fans in general. Uh, you know, I love the 80s slasher stuff. The Friday the 13th franchise is my favorite of the, the like the big three. You know, you think of Halloween, Friday the 13th, and, and Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, so we just love horror films, and I'm really excited to be here talking with you guys about this one. Yeah, we're sort of cheating on Universal today over on the Paramount <laughs> lot as well. So, uh, you know, don't mind us. But yeah, I as well am a huge Jason fan. I think 
like Dan said, out of out of the sort of modern big three, he's my favorite as well out of those three, and so I'm excited to be here. And you guys are going to really help me today because I'm a novice to this franchise, more or less, and I, I can't say I'm a novice to horror films in general. Mike, we've watched so many prom night movies that I really can't <laughs> say that, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, and, uh, and and slumber party massacre series as slumber well party so massacre, you're, you're yeah. well inundated at this point i am but i'm still definitely not an expert i know you know people have encyclopedic knowledge of this franchise i do not so i'll definitely be leaning on you guys i'll read things that i read on the internet so please correct me be like no 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 brian that is bullshit so <laughs> let me know of course and the reason we're talking about this now is because of course, this is a Corey film. We get little baby, little baby Corey Feldman in this movie. So excited to talk that. Mike, everyone knows your history with the Corys at this point. But Dan, do you have any kind of two Corys history at all? Are you familiar with their work? Obviously here, but what's your history with the Corys? Well, Brian, as you uh, may be aware of, uh, I actually was on the most listened to episode of High School Slumber <laughs> Party from last year where we discussed That's right. The Lost Boys, uh, <laughs> which is where the Corys met. That is actually probably the beginning and end of my experience with the Corys as a unit. Hmm. <laughs> they are the Alpha and the Omega in, <laughs> in the I'm, same movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to, to think of another time I would have come across Corey Haim. Corey Feldman has featured much more dominantly in my life, for sure. Uh, so I, I think it might be Lost Boys, unless something else snuck in there that I just I, I'm just not... Um, remembering yeah I'm, I'm looking at his filmography now and and i don't think i've seen anything else but the lost boys yeah cory feldman is, is much more um prominent in my life well if you want to catch up on all your cory Haim, definitely uh you know uh, watch some movies and listen yeah. to high school slumber party because we've been there but i'm happy that we're getting to talk pre two cory's feldman because that's that's like so awesome um yeah and then dan of course that Lost Boys episode was so much fun with Shawnee, so happy to have you back on again in that respect as well. Now, Friday the 13th, the final chapter. This is the fourth in the series, correct? That's right. Yeah, fourth out of 12, I think, so not not exactly the final chapter. <laughs> no, which, which I was confused when we first kind of were talking about this in message. I was like, wait a minute, there's more movies after that, but hey... Whatever. Well, I think we'll, we'll get into it. <laughs> yeah, I think we will get into it a little bit. I'm not sure whether or not they had plans after. It was definitely supposed to be the end of Jason, but not the end of the franchise, as I think we'll discuss. I'm assuming you guys have seen all of them, some of them. If that's your favorite, I'm assuming you've seen all of them. So what's your history specifically with the franchise like that? Yeah, so, I mean, Dan was actually on my episode on Third Times of Charm. We covered mm-hmm. part 3D. I think we go a little more in-depth into our histories there, but this franchise has always been with me. I mean, I remember being a little kid and my brother and his friend watching this movie in the other room and me not being a lot, not this movie, but this franchise, like the early ones. I remember my brother actually went and saw this one in theaters and when he came home, he was like talking about it and I was like so, oh, wow. conf- I was like so confused what he was, what he meant when he was talking about Tommy Jarvis and all this kind of stuff and, and, and you know, Corey Feldman and everything and didn't understand why I could see Gremlins, but not this movie. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, throughout my life, I mean, ever since I was like a teenager, as they were coming out, I was sort of seeing them, picking up on them. I remember I think the first new one that I saw 
was when Jason Goes to Hell. Like, that was the one, I think, number nine, when I started seeing them when they were coming out. Like, that was the age I was at. I think this is considered to be most people's, if not favorite, I think they recognize this might be one of the best, uh, one of the most well-made, one of sort of like the better examples of the franchise. And uh, I certainly love this one, so I'm, I'm looking forward to going a little deeper on it. I was going to ask what the fans kind of thought of this film because I have no perspective. So, so Dan, uh, what's your history? Yeah, so I, I first saw the um, the original Friday the Thirteenth in college when I was kind of going through my um, my like crash course of classic horror sort of phase, and um, you know, along with the first Friday the Thirteenth, I caught the first Halloween, the first um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, I kind of wanted to see where all these franchises started. I didn't get a chance to really like run the series for quite a while after that. So really the first one was kind of the, my, my, my go-to is the one I knew. Um, and here and there I would see some of the other ones, but you know, for somebody who uh, was aware of Jason Voorhees and only really knew that first film, it was interesting for me, you know, getting to discover Jason in context. These days I have the the full collection i have all of them you know i bought that uh shout factory the scream factory uh box set that they put out i think last year or the year before and that's got every single friday the 13th film in it uh including the the 2009 remake so yeah there was a weekend i think a couple years ago where i had sort of collected them all individually and just watched every single one in a single weekend which was a huge undertaking (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, this this film, uh, as far as where it sits in my like ranking of the whole franchise, I put it at number one. I checked my letterboxed uh, wow. list. Yeah, it's a. I think it's number one for me as well, Brian. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's it's my number one. But if if I'm being perfectly honest, I would say that the top like three or four are very very close together. You know, it's this one. Uh, I have Friday Part Six. The, the original and part two are all kind of in my top four. So yeah, given, you know, d- depending on the day of the week, my favorite might change. But as of when I put that list together, this one was my number one. And I would say after watching it, you know, recently, uh, I would say this is still my favorite. It, it has everything that I want from a Friday the 13th movie. Jason isn't as much of a character in this one as, as he is in some others, but that's okay. I kind of like that he he's not overly present to the point where it gets comedic, which definitely happens in later installments. Uh, We've got a great colorful cast of teenagers and and other characters who are uh, there for, you know, to be killed, essentially, you know, so it's got kind of everything that you want from a movie like this. Yeah, this is one I definitely, it's high on my list. I watch it a lot. I watch these a lot in general. Uh, I'd say like every Friday the 13th, I'll try and watch like two or three of them or something um uh yeah i'm with dan as far as like i think the the front half is probably better than the back half but in general i think they're better than not like i you know what i'm saying like i think most of them are fine films and a few of them are really good uh, I, I love part six i love part two uh i love part eight <laughs> i love <laughs> part i love part x i mean like they're there's just so sort of like you could do anything with Jason now at this point, you know, to the point where they sent him to space. And I loved it. So, yeah, these these are ones I visit a lot. I would say, Mike, I think you might agree here that even like the ones that are considered bad are still a lot of fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, there's still because there's always different ways for people to die. And Jason is a great 
character to you know to facilitate that and and one of the things so i say this is my favorite of those three major franchises now i don't know that it's necessarily the best because i think that nightmare on elm street um which we have talked about is uh, dream warriors we are all dream warriors (laughs) i think that's a little more um like the ingenuity behind the the concept i think that's the much better concept freddy krueger is much more um terrifying than jason Voorhees is and then Halloween as a franchise, I think, is is very inconsistent. You know, there's all these different plot lines and the quality, you know, I think overall is is the worst of the three. But, you know, you kind of know what you're getting from a Jason Voorhees Friday the 13th movie all the time. You know, Jason as a character is always pretty consistent. Um, you know, you, you show up for the kills. The characters are always pretty pretty entertaining and even when they throw in some oddball stuff like a girl with telekinetic powers like it's it's really insane but also you know pretty fun yeah i would say that uh, the reason this franchise is my favorite is is for its overall consistency you know what i mean i mean you answered a lot of my questions there i am an like i said a novice to this franchise i've seen some of them i couldn't tell you which ones because the context that i watched these in like they were on in the background of a Halloween party, you know, right. stuff yeah. like that. I never really sat down and said, let me watch a, one of these Friday the 13th movies. And this, so th- in a weird way, not in a weird way, in an honest way, this is really my first time doing that. So I was very curious, like, did I get a good one? Or is this one that's typical of the franchise in terms of style? But you're saying the style's pretty consistent so i mean that's great that's all great to hear you know brian of you kind of wanted to know uh where this sits among fans right and uh even though this is mike and i's favorite i would say that if you were to ask any uh, friday the 13th fan i would say either this one or part six is going to be the overwhelming uh like favorite those two are pretty pretty well regarded amongst um uh, horror fans in general so you, you got really lucky in that you got you know, what many consider to be the best one. I mean, awesome and great to hear. So let me read the back of the old VHS for if there's any listeners out there like me who aren't too familiar with the franchise. Here goes. The body count continues in this vivid thriller, the fourth and final question mark story in the widely successful Friday the 13th series. Jason, Crystal Lake's least popular citizen, returns to wreak further havoc in Friday the 13th, the final chapter. After his revival in a hospital morgue, the hockey mass murderer fixes his vengeful attention on the Jarvis family and a group of a group of hitherto carefree teenagers. Young Tommy Jarvis is an aficionado of horror films with a special talent for masks and makeup. Has the diabolical Jason finally met his match? <laughs> I love that they sort of give away, uh, you know, that a child is going to take down Jason. Uh Yeah, Jason (laughs) has met his match. A (laughs) 12-year-old? Well, that was one of my awesome big takeaways from the film. So when this was put on the list, because we were talking about it, I was like, okay, Corey, Corey Feldman's a kid. He probably just plays some random kid in the movie. I didn't realize that he was so important to this film. <laughs> Brian, he's the star of the movie. Like, he is the star power. Crispin Glover was not, like, Crispin Glover yet. I mean, even if Back to the Future was out, he, you know, that still didn't 
make him who he, you know what I mean? Like that didn't catapult him into superstardom. If anything, I heard like he uh, caused problems on sets of that movie. <laughs> like, like to get Corey Feldman, I think was a get. You know, I think that was like great. We have our star power. Like, let's get to work or something. Yeah, he's played smaller characters in movies that came out after this one. You know, I thought about um, Corey Feldman and like where my uh, first real introduction was to him. And I think, you know, for, like, like a lot of other people, he made his mark on me with the Goonies, but he was in my life before that. He was in uh, in a smaller role in Gremlins, you know, and, and I mean, later on he did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and that was a big chi- childhood movie for me, you know, so he was in my life in that way. But yeah, he was in Gremlins in a small supporting role. And here he's like the hero of the movie, which I thought was awesome. Yeah, yeah. And even when Corey Haim did that Stephen King werewolf movie, like he wasn't the star power in it, you know, like he was the kid in the wheelchair. I guess he was the lead kid, but I believe that was more of like a Busey vehicle, if I'm not mistaken, or something else. So it's like my point is, you know, Corey Feldman as a child actor, I feel like had more marquee value at the time than Corey Haim. Uh, So I just kind of found that interesting, uh, you know, in retrospect. For sure. And Mike, you and I will, uh, you know, we have already discussed how or felt like it started out with Corey Feldman being the lead Corey. And then it does this switch that, um, you know, Corey Haim starts to be the lead and Corey Feldman's kind of, you know, the fun friend a lot. And that's something that Feldman not complained about, but he said it was like hurt him to lose all these roles to Corey Haim because he was the more established one. And it kind of just flip-flopped and then you know eventually things happen to the both of them whatever but (laughs) it is interesting to see the origins of the whole you know phenomenon kind of in one of the early roles here in terms of this film again i I, so i read a lot on the interweb about it so again feel free to correct me if you've heard something differently but from my readings there was a couple different um reasons why this was called the final chapter a lot of like in-house rivalry some people were not um satisfied with the third one you guys covered the third one on third time's a charm mm-hmm. and then they kind of wanted to do justice to the jason character there were also rumors this is what i read that paramount was kind of done with the franchise and they really wanted to put the final chapter on it to make sure it was the last one um, have you guys heard any of anything else in time kind of related to this? Um, I heard the second one. I listened to a little bit of the audio commentary with the writer and the, and the director. They're both on there. And they mentioned that the studio was basically done with Jason movies to like, you know, it's enough. Three, you know, no, you know, he's not James Bond, I guess, is something like, which is ironic because the beginning of part six, he'll do like the James Bond walk on. Uh, that's right sort of <laughs> uh but yeah like i i heard it was just paramount was pretty much done with jason at the time they're like we don't want to make any more of his slasher movies yeah i mean and to put it in context you know after the first friday the 13th came out there was like a boom of uh slasher films you know everybody every studio in hollywood wanted to uh cash in on the success of that first movie and by 1984 there had been so many slasher films put out that the market was just saturated and audiences were kind of um, sick of it, you know? So it makes sense that by 1984, Paramount would want to, like, put this to bed, uh, you know, finally. And it's ironic to me that given that motivation, like, the, okay, we're going to 
we're gonna we're gonna not make any more of these. It's gonna be the last one. They end up cranking out again what is considered to be one of the best in the franchise, and I think that's why it didn't stay dead. You know, like people were clearly still in love with Jason Voorhees, and uh, so in a, it was in a, in a year or two later we get part five. You know, it didn't take very long for them to crank out the next installment, even after they decided that this is gonna be the final chapter. Yeah, and I'm and I'm still not entirely convinced that they were done with the franchise per se like I almost wonder if they just wanted to take it in a different direction and get out of the woods and off of the lake and try and figure out another way to like incorporate it almost like the way Halloween was sort of envisioned as you know sort of like oh Michael Myers was only really supposed to be in the first one it's sort of an anthology series and that's kind of what the Friday the 13th television show became which was a horror anthology series so oh wow and that started in 1987 so that would track that you know they'd get the ball yeah. rolling a couple years earlier yeah my other thing is like this movie clearly ends on a cliffhanger and the next two are basically part of a trilogy like this one and the next two are the tommy jarvis trilogy okay like he's the main character there's really no jason in the next one like it's all about him becoming the title character okay and i whether it be the jason hunter or the new maniac is to be determined all right but that's sort of where the, the next movie is going to explore are these events going to sort of scar have they scarred tommy to the point of him becoming a monster or the hero from this point on and stuff. So like all of the things that came after this just made me think like they liked the title. They just didn't like Jason anymore for whatever reason. I, I'm not sure. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a second trilogy. Does that mean? Yes. That six? Yep. What? Yep. Okay. okay. Yes. Oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> we know exactly what you're about to say. It will be covered on Third Times of Charm. We discussed it on part three. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I just wanted uh, the slumbers to to know. Uh, that's fascinating, interesting. So, Mike, you said you heard a little bit of the audio commentary. Uh, so the the director of this is a guy named Joseph Zito. He was hired oh, because yeah. of yep. <laughs> he was hired because of a film called The Prowler. I'm not familiar with it. According to the Wikipedia page, it says that they hired him to write and direct, and apparently he took the money and hired uh, Barney Cohen just another dude to write the screenplay for him. And uh, they ended up getting in trouble with the writer's guild because of that. Cause I don't think you're supposed to do that or whatever. <laughs> if you look at almost every actor's notes about this, they're all complaining about this guy and how they were treated on set. <laughs> oh, <nuts. laughs> the Prowler Brian is a film you should absolutely check out. Again, it's directed by Joseph Zito and the, the makeup was also done by Tom Savini. And uh, oh, okay. so there's some carryover there as well. And if you watch them back to back, there are some similarities. One specific scene that uh, mirrors a scene from The Prowler. And uh, The Prowler also was shot in Cape May, New Jersey. So there's some uh, their home, hometown pride there. Or home state, nice. home state pride, I should say. Nice. It's Definitely going to check it out then. I don't know what people's issue, though, with the, the director was as a person, but the stories are not great. But uh, you mentioned Dan, Tom Savini, so we'll get to him right away. Mm -hmm. Legend here, obviously. You know, I, I've learned a little bit about them, but either you, let's say a slumber out there has no idea who Tom Savini is in a couple sentences. Can you explain who he is? Yeah, I'll give it a try. He is basically the creator of the modern horror special effects aesthetic i would say uh i'm not really sure how else to like put it he is a close friend of george romero i believe like he was supposed to be there on the first night of the living dead but um 
He is a war photographer in Vietnam, which is where he attributes the uh, his inspiration for all the atrocities that he has created since then is like his way of dealing with that. But yeah, he, he you know, he came on the scene, I guess, in the late 60s, early 70s, and just kind of revolutionized um, practical effects as far as like horror, uh, what was possible with uh, prosthetics and, and stuff like that, and, and really specialized in gore um, and trying to get that down as like very believable, if not uh, as cool as as cool looking as possible, you know, like really interested in all that. Later on, like his protégés, I think, went on to create the KMB effects work, and they are responsible now for like almost everything as far as like practical effects they work on like the walking dead and all that kind of stuff uh so yeah and to the best of my knowledge he's still uh he's still around he's still doing stuff he's probably semi-retired but yeah just like a legend in the field yeah i was gonna say there's a couple uh high profile makeup artists in the horror world and you know the others being rick baker uh, more recently, Greg Nicotero, where Savini... V. Neal, re- right? Like, V. Neal, I learned from from that show, Face Off. <laughs> that's right, yep. Uh, but where Savini really made his mark was with uh, extreme violence and gore. So if somebody's getting slashed up or chewed up, or, you know, because Mike mentioned he worked with George Romero on the, on the Living Dead films, you know, if it involved blood and guts, it was likely Tom Savini who was responsible. And, you know, he's probably my favorite of those horror makeup artists as well. Brian, uh, you were on the Day of the Dead episode, okay? So, mm-hmm. like, you remember all the gore and guts and, and how crazy it was there, right? So, like, that's sort of where he was able to take it. <laughs> you know, this is sort of one of his... The Friday the 13th movies seemed to be sort of, like, where he liked to test out gimmicks and stuff, and then, like, he'd bring them over to, the, the like, the George Romero movie and do them all in one movie or something like that. I mean, yeah, I was just going to mention that, like, you know, I really read a lot about him when we all did that episode... Uh, on your show, Mike. So happy to see the name again and see his work here. Before we get into the cast, I just want to mention that if the studio wanted to kill this film, um, no pun intended, the success of it made it impossible. From everything you guys are saying with how popular it's become, but it also had a $2 million budget and it made $33 million, which in 1984 is really good for a horror film. So yeah, I mean... (laughs) If that was the plan, unsuccessful. So, <laughs> so we already obviously mentioned Corey Feldman a million times. The uh, big notes I got about him on this film specifically was that, uh, we'll just jump to it. The guy who played Jason in this movie, Ted White, he asked for his name to be removed from the credits because he didn't get along with the director uh, apparently um correct me if i'm wrong but like they have different people play it's not like freddie right they have different people play jason that's correct not every yeah every yeah. time or almost every just, time just about right? just about i think up until a certain point i think this guy kane hodder ended up yeah it wasn't him. until kane hodder came on i think in part eight that uh, it became one guy um and even then it's still yeah. not you know i think he only did a handful but he's probably the most famous but prior to that, yeah, they would hit a revolving door of Jason Voorhees. There wasn't just one. So Ted White, he was a very old school guy. He was famous before that for being John Wayne, Clark Gable. Like those guys, he was their body double or oh, their stunt double geez. for those kind of movies. So when he, he hated doing this movie. He had no respect for horror, apparently. He walked on the set kind of in a bad mood. But he was more upset with the way that the director was uh, treating a lot of the actors. 
Um, he thought it was very unprofessional. However, <laughs> for all the love he had for the teen actors, he hated Corey Feldman. <laughs> oh, no. Hated him, apparently. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to get the quote. Hold on. He said, he was the meanest goddamn little kid he's ever met. That's what oh he my said God. about Crazy. him. So they just did not get along on set. There's a moment where he grabs uh, Corey Feldman. Like, he didn't warn the young actor about it. He wanted his visceral reaction. So that scream is really his scream. Anytime Corey Feldman's, like, hitting something or attacking something, he said in the past, like, he wished it was that actor. Like, they were just rivals on set, which is, like, fucked up but hilarious to me. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) Some other Corey Feldman facts in this movie. He's obviously kind of a little pervert in this movie. He likes to see... The teenagers get naked, but they made it. They tried their best to make sure he didn't see any of that. It was all like you know, different shots or whatever. Or you'd have the girl wearing something, he'd react to her being naked. That was like kind of their job on set. Like some of the uh, teenage actors actually took him trick or treating, you know, while they were filming. So they really tried to care for him. So anyone who thinks that like young Corey Feldman was like you know, exposed to all these ladies' boobies at that age. Um, that, yeah. that was not that was not the case. Or, like, smoking their weed either. Uh, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, no. Whatever you think I, for, you might have heard or something. By all accounts, Corey Feldman's still, like, an innocent boy at this point. The other thing is uh, related to Tom Savini. Originally in the script, before they, they knew that they could get Tom Savini back to this franchise... Uh, he was more of like an inventor, the character, so he was really good with gadgets and more of the um, the things that he would be doing were not necessarily like the masks he's building and, and all that kind of stuff, but it was more gadgets to defeat Jason. And you can still see that in the movie because he's, <laughs> there's that scene where he kind of like semi-repairs his sister's car or the, the family car. Oh or yeah, where he figures out it's the solenoid. That's yeah, and that was that was part of the script. But once Tom Savini came on, they decided to kind of make the character as like to pay homage to a younger, like Tom Savini. So he's supposed to be like a, yeah. you know, protege theoretically uh, of that kind of you know uh, workshop, that kind of creature workshop that that he has. So uh, those are my Feldman facts. All right, uh, I think the character is very awesome to have in a horror movie. Like, you have this kid in the movie who can't even go see the movie, and I know that's, like, a thing that uh, is now, like, kind of not unusual, but I feel like almost at the time that's, that's like, a like kind of a new thing almost, you know? Like, what's this little kid doing running around? Like, the stakes are instantly higher, you know what I'm saying? And, like, you just feel like there's more responsibility on these teens now than to just party down and get drunk and stuff with the killer on the loose. There's like a little boy, uh, you know, on the board now. So that's really interesting. Like, cause they won't have even campers at Crystal Lake until part six, you know? And like, that's the only other one I think that has like little kids in it where you're like, Jesus, but that's way also more sort of comedic once we get down to that part. But that's what I took from this primarily is that whole thing where it's like really cool to have like a little kid in this movie where it's mostly going to be a lot of like horny teens getting murdered. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was going to say, like you pointed it out, it's unusual in any other context, adding a child to an established adult franchise would probably kill it. You know, you think about TV shows where they add a new child <laughs> yeah. or you think of other things that they <laughs> add a kid and it's like, that. OK, well, that's where everything went south. Here, it's it's unusual in that it's where the franchise really starts to get good. 
at least the first and third installments in the Tommy Jarvis franchise are excellent. I mean, there are people who love the fifth uh, part five. Um, you know, I, I, I like part five, but I, I have to say that it I was disappointed the first time I saw it. It took some time to, to adjust to it and, and come around to it. But four and six are incredible. And it's all because they made the decision to add a child in part four at the end of this of what, you know, what this franchise was supposed to be. Um, but yeah, I, I love the Corey Feldman's character here, Tommy. Like, I like how handy he is. You know, the fact that he can fix a car or he can fix whatever electrical problem is going on in the house and he's into, like, horror makeup, too, didn't seem like they were stretching the character too far. I actually think mm-hmm. that if they had if they had uh, kept the character as originally conceived, where he was, like, inventing gadgets and things to kill Jason, that would have <laughs> felt a little too... Um... Now, again, this predates my reference, but considering I watched it way later, I think it holds up. But it would have felt, like, you know, too Home Alone-y. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say that too. You know, like it obviously would have predated Home Alone, but I, I like that he seems like a, a normal kid who's just handy as opposed to being this like 10-year-old, you know, death machine, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also love how he's like the first generation Gorehound. Like this, these are yes. the kids now growing up you know, that are going to grow up to make these movies eventually, you know, and to follow Tom Savini and go to his school and to open up their own effects studios and, you know, love Fangoria, you know, to this day and, and right. And like, are probably watching Joe Bob Briggs on Friday nights and stuff. Like I love the concept of like, this is a kid that loves these types of movies and now he's in a movie. Like, this is just a lot like a big sort of love letter to the genre in a way to drop, to drop this character in there and to sort of go that, far and be like no like you know kids used to like make monster models in their rooms making masks is not a giant step like it is not beyond me to believe that this kid has this type of skill you know like I knew kids in in grade school that were super advanced you know more than this you know brainiacs and stuff so like it plays well to me that he's just sort of this like precocious advanced kid who has no problem kind of like you know, uh, introducing himself to these teenagers who rented the house next, you know, like he's so, he's so like, you know, open and out there and everything like that. Like, I really like this character. Yeah. And I think that that's sort of following a little bit of a trend. I know that Mike, when you and I had talked about, uh, part three, we talked about the one character, Shelly, who a lot of people kind of hate, but I kind of enjoyed because the way I saw him in that film was like, he's like one of us. He's the kid with the weird horror masks, right? He just likes to scare people. And he's he's the kid who's going to be reading Fangoria. Yeah. You know, like, he's the horror fan. And now we've got Corey Feldman in this film who represents, like, the horror industry people. Like you said, the, this is the character that's going to grow up and be making horror films as an adult, as opposed to just loving them the way we do. So I love that that, like, they put these characters in there that sort of represent us to a degree. And that, for me, is Corey Feldman in this one. Yeah, I mean, again, it's awesome. He's technically not a teenager here, but we can still allow it on High School Slumber Party because <laughs> it, most most of the people are teenagers uh, in the movie, which is great. I'm telling you, I know I said it already, but I did not expect Corey Feldman to be as big of a star in this movie as he ends up being. He really steals the show. Kimberly Beck plays his sister. She apparently hates this film. 
and it does not. Oh. Well, she said it's a she, she said it's a C movie, not a B movie. Did not enjoy horror. I don't know. A lot of the actors do not speak well she, about this. She, she, she lives. She survives. What does she have to complain about? She's pretty good in know. it too. I liked her. <laughs> I, I think it's the director. Like for instance, Peter Barton, who played Doug. Like the director insisted that he be actually slammed into the shower, like not a stuntman, not any you know, oh. trick photography or whatever. Uh, the biggest case, though, of the of, like the teens just hating the director was um, Samantha, played by Judy Aronson. She's the one who's mm-hmm. like in the water. She was submerged for so many takes in the lake that was freezing that she actually got hypothermia. And this oh, really, no. really pissed off Ted White. Like, this was like the straw that broke the camel's back. <laughs> I'm going to call it John Wayne. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, like, and there's just, this movie's littered with stories from the actors of just them, like, not enjoying themselves on wow. set. So maybe that's why. And good, like, the movie ends up being a, a success. You said it's very popular with the fans of the franchise. Um, but it is telling that I, I don't think this guy directs another one, right? No. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> no. I, I, mean, I don't think so. So there you go. I don't know. <laughs> but you hear of like tyrannical directors all the time. Like I'm not saying he was trying to be one or anything like that, you know, but it's like, yeah, James Cameron's an asshole too, right? Like, but his movies kick ass. So it's like Michael Jordan, right? Like you watch that documentary, it's like, you know, no one liked him, but like everyone loves him, you know? But like yeah. I, I think you have to be James Cameron or Michael Jordan. Perhaps, to... perhaps. But he 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 did this guy did turn out possibly the best in the franchise. So that's all I'm saying. Like, I'm not saying that it's right. You know what I mean? But it's just kind of funny how, like, th- this movie's nothing but complaints behind the scenes, and yet, like, they got it done, and it's, like, one of the best ones. It's just, there's something ironic to me about that. But, like, Hitchcock could do that, right? Like, well, yeah, that's what name. he did. That, there's a yeah. perfect name. But, like, right. Yeah, there's a guy right there. But you don't also just, you know, for whatever this guy, the Prowler. People like that. People like this movie. But after that, you don't see like all these great well, movies from this dude. Yeah, his his next movie after this came out the same year. Was a film called Missing in Action with Chuck Norris. I have to imagine oh, okay. work, all right. work, working with Chuck Norris may have humbled him somewhat. Could have, might have. Could you imagine yeah. being like that to Chuck Norris? <laughs> like, there's no way. <laughs> Oh, I didn't realize he directed Missing in Action. That's like one of the most famous <laughs> Norris films. A few years after that, he made a, a movie uh, called Red Scorpion. came out in 1988 starring Dolph Lundgren. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, 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 yeah, yeah, I have I to imagine surrounding himself with big tough guys like that. W- w- you know, <laughs> you can't pull the same shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chuck Norris will call the karate commandos on your ass. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was already mentioned, but I see. I suppose the most famous teen here is Crispin Glover, Back to the Future, all uh, that. So specifically, I think what he stands out in this movie for is his incredible dancing. Oh, the dancing! Like, <laughs> da- like, like, yeah, the da- This dance became like a a meme. I think. Wow, pretty pretty early on in the days of memes, right? Like the uh, or the video GIF. I'm sorry, right? It's different. There's a difference between the the moving ones. Yes, the, yes, yeah. it is a famous GIF. Anyone else in the cast that really stood out to you or was famous? Uh, maybe the twins. I don't know. Uh, anyone else you really liked here? <laughs> I only really knew the Barbie twins, so like I didn't know the. But it's cool that there's twins. Like they're not. You know, it reminds me of like the Doublemint twins, uh, which was a popular <laughs> gum commercial at the time. The the girl that played Samantha, you mentioned the uh, Judy Aronson. She's in Weird Science. I recognized her. 
That was pretty cool. Yeah. Everyone else I didn't really get like a read on except for Teddy. Teddy seemed real familiar, but I couldn't place him from anywhere. And I just kind of, I liked his character. I thought he was a good sort of, uh, I thought he was more well-rounded than most of the characters in this movie. Yeah. He's sort of like the, the asshole in the group, but he, and, and he does get annoying by the end, but I don't find him to be like so obnoxious as to be uh, really unlikable. Yeah, what what I liked about him is he felt the most age appropriate and um, oh, as sure. far right as far as like cool and fun, but also like obnoxious and annoying. But also like I can understand why they're friends because he's fun. Uh, and also like you think, or at least I thought going into the movie that he was like the the sort of guy who always got laid, you know. But he's the guy who never gets laid, so it's like kind of, <laughs> kind of a cool twist. I feel like it did a lot of those. Um... A little unexpected twist, as you say. Even again, I'll bring him up again, but the Feldman character being kind of like the final girl here, I think is pretty cool. Or the fact that there's not just one person who's the final person or whatever. I think that's pretty cool. That's what also threw me off as well. And like, you yeah. know, there's there's a virgin who becomes not a virgin in the movie. So like, there's, you know, there's stuff like that that I was like, oh, like I didn't expect yeah. that virgin girl to actually have sex, right? Like, because I've seen it in so many movies where she just resists. I don't know. Or... You know, the lovers killed before that happens, but not yeah. here. So I, I liked how they played with those things a little bit. Not in a, like a crazy way, but just small tweaks to keep me guessing. I can't I can't remember exactly, but then was there also a kid at the end of part three? Maybe not. I could be mistaken. Maybe that's the end of part six that I'm thinking of. And get it, I, even to this day, I get them as confused as I do Bond films sometimes. But Yeah, it's, it's not three. It could be six. Okay, then it's probably six. Okay. Yeah, I, I love the the way that this film has a family at the center of it you know mm. um a lot of these movies are about teenagers and it's usually the counselors or it's a bunch of kids who want to like go hang out at camp blood and this this movie has that but it's they're not like the the core characters of the movie you know there's a family here who, who lives here all the time and then we've got this sort of stereotypical group of kids who are coming to for like a weekend or whatever and, and they're going to stay next door. So you get kind of the best of both worlds here, which should feel clunky, but it really doesn't, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. And you could even, like, if you wanted to, read into it in a kind of deeper meaning because of the the central sort of family dynamics in the movie where there is this there's no father and the father has left the family okay so it's just the kids and the mom and they're like oh you know i hope our parents get back together and then here comes jason right like the <laughs> ultimate like anti-father figure or something like that and he's there killing kids like he kills like 13 people in this movie and you know and it's like oh shit like that's not what we meant but like there's something just kind of yeah like i don't know thematically like there's more fun to be had here than usual because of that those extra dynamics and things yeah i mean uh i think it's like i said really really cool i was pleasantly surprised here someone else i wanted to mention in the cast this is a very small role but it's high school slumber party adjacent so uh there's a doctor character who we could get into who's like watching an implied masturbating to workout videos. <laughs> okay. uh, the, the, the star of the workout video is Darcy DeMoss, who actually follows High School Slumber Party on Instagram. So Whoa. thank you, Darcy. Awesome. Um, but she was in a movie we covered on our cheerleading series, a very older, and again, she's just a background character in this one, but a very old uh, cheerleading movie called Gimme an F. But she is actually a more featured character in Can't Buy Me Love. 
So if you look up like oh, Darcy DeMoss, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she she's actually the workout girl in this. So I just wanted to shout her out. I don't know if she listens, but she always follows, <laughs> follows on a on high school slumber parties. Oh, Instagram and she's page. and she's in Hard Bodies, which came oh, out yeah, the same okay. year. Came out the same year. She's in a bunch of stuff, so yeah. Now that I look up her IMDb, so again, once again, thank you, Darcy, yes. for the follow. <laughs> so I gotta, I gotta mention, do this mention real quick, because I just, I just clicked on Joan Freeman, who plays the mother, who plays Mrs. Jarvis. She's in this movie Roustabout with Elvis. So Joey and I just started doing our Elvis podcast again. I got, we're gonna eventually get to that movie and uh, come across uh, this woman again. So that's pretty cool. There's pictures of her with Elvis dancing with Elvis. All kinds of stuff. So I thought that w- that's pretty neat. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, that's everyone else that I kind of had questions about. I kind of, you know, try to do a deep dive of the actors, and no one really, really stuck out to me so much. The one other person, I know we already mentioned him, the guy who plays Ted, Lawrence Monasum. He's actually the star of a movie that's on my list that I've never seen called The Last American Virgin. Oh, yeah. That's one of the very first canon films, I think. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because, like, the canon... I think they were cousins or something like uh, I can't remember exactly, but like they made films overseas. I think they were Israeli and they made a couple films over there to make their way to America and then remade their first couple films in America, like almost shot for shot. And I do believe that might be one of them, if not the first. Oh, that's awesome. You know, can't wait to cover it. It seems interesting. Interesting title for sure. <laughs> let's uh, let's get into the movie, though. I'm curious, you know, what your guys' favorite moments and scenes are. But my first question right off the bat is, as like a non-religious watcher of this franchise, we have a little bit of a recap at the beginning here. Yeah. Is this is this a very accurate recap, would you say? Are these actual shots from the earlier films, I'm assuming? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you could kind of tell, too, because there's been three movies, and let's just say three different looks. Uh, the first movie, spoiler, it's Mrs. Voorhees. So anytime you don't see the killer and it's a, a POV shot, that's usually from the first movie. The second movie, he's got a bag over his head. So those are the shots of the second movie. And then all the um, hockey mask stuff is from part three. So you could definitely like see what is from what if you know the films a little bit better. And the, and the campfire story that sort of runs through that whole montage is from the second one. That's like the beginning of, of, of Friday part two. Uh, all the counselors are back at the camp, and the guy who's sort of in charge tells them all that that story. Yeah, so this whole sort of opening thing before the credits is like, you know, a put-together thing after, I believe, it was done. I think they said on the audio commentary, none, no one was involved. This was like a studio thing that they put together and, and tagged on the start of the movie, which I like. I love when they do this stuff, you know. I think this is a good idea, doing the little recap. If you haven't, if, you know, if you missed last week, you know, here's what's going on. <laughs> um, and now you're up to speed. Well, there is something to say for a franchise that it feels like you can kind of just jump in at any time and be okay, right? Like, that's what I felt here um, with this film, so... You know, more power to them for doing that. What do you think of the, I guess, the pre-sort of teenagers getting to the cabin right. well, sort, here, of, sort of thing here? here? Here's the best thing. And uh, Dan, man, like this is something we've run into on The Monsters That Made Us that, that recently surprised me very much. You know, this movie picks up exactly after the end of the last movie. Like, literally, like, this is the next shot. Like, after the last shot of part three, it boom, we're here. It's the same scene. We're cleaning up after the mess. And, like, 
this is how uh, in the universal world of monster films in the 30s, the, the, the Bride of Frankenstein picks up directly, you know, the minute after Frankenstein and Dracula's daughter picks up the minute after Dracula ends, you know, so I just love when that happens like i'm i was a fan of the i'm a huge last jedi's my favorite star wars movie and one of the reasons is because it picks up immediately after the last movie like it's just a continuous thing going on like i love that smoothness and i love it here and i love the opening shot and everything and it's really cool uh yeah i i love the for the same reasons i, I think that um it's really fun to pick up immediately uh after because it, it does sort of seem like they're trying to close the story right i think these, these are the things you would do when you when you want to end you recap and then uh this is again the final chapter the title makes sense but yeah I, I so i love the the whole hospital sequence you know if we want to jump a little bit ahead into mm -hmm. that hi girls thanks for waiting oh no Get lost, Axel. I'm busy. I've had more than enough of you for one night. Read my lips. Leave me alone! I think that that's where, you know, a lot of the tropes had been become established. We feel comfortable kind of uh, in this space. Yeah, I, I think that first kill in that sequence is incredible. Like it really set, it sets the tone for the like the entire movie. Yeah, I too like the hospital stuff that Jason um, has to like escape the hospital or like sneak out of the hospital or, or whatever. You know, it also kind of reminds me a little like maybe they're maybe they're doing a little of Halloween too, which took place entirely in a hospital, if I'm not mistaken. So yep. like it's kind of I like that we're away from crystal lake for a minute you know it's kind of neat to see because you don't really get a lot of world building in these movies most of them take place on the lake somewhere and then it's like all right the rest of the world's out there at some point but until they actually travel to like manhattan you don't see any other real locations kind of except for like the feed store or the local bar so it was kind of nice in this movie to like get away from the lake for a minute yeah actually um look as someone who'd never seen the movie i didn't know where we were going i didn't know if this early scene or these early scenes were going to be what it was about. So I, I thought it closed perfectly, and I liked how then we kind of boomed to the teenagers. And I know we're seeing Jason kill. Uh, he kills that hitchhiker at one point. He just He's kind of like slowly killing people, but we don't get our real like start to the killing spree of the teenagers till much later in the film. So this like uh, earlier part was pretty cool to like, wet my appetite a little bit for these kills you know what i mean um it wasn't one of those movies where and i don't hate these movies either but it wasn't one of those movies where like oh 45 minutes in the killer shows up and then we start everything like we, we got to see it at the beginning then we get to build to like where it's going and then you know we get a cool kind of ending in a sense so i don't know i i liked how they uh you know we're setting things up here well let me ask you a, qu uh, a question brian i'm, I'm kind of curious did, did you feel as somebody who is not really um familiar with the franchise as a whole did you feel like caught up to speed adequately in the beginning mo like scenes of this film uh yes and no so the only I i'm glad you, you asked me because the only thing 
that I just was not sure about was why is Jason killing these people? You know, just is like, is he just okay. crazy? Mm-hmm. Does he have it's just because they're on the land that he previously occupied? And that was my only thing where I'm like, okay, I wish I really watched the first two before this so I can know that aspect of it. Otherwise, it all made sense if that, you know, if that, yeah, out. yeah, yeah. I think one thing they could have done a little more uh, here at the top in this opening in the first reel before we get back to Crystal Lake is sort of emphasize a little more. Uh, exactly who we're dealing with. Like we get a bit of a news report and they're about to talk about the Camp Crystal Lake massacres and the killings and Jason Voorhees. And it's as if they're going to explain it and they just skip over. They just change the channel. They're like, no, we don't want to like deal with that. But I think they should have, they should have done a couple of things. Like we get one shot of, uh, of like parents crying in a waiting room. And it's like, well, like whose parents are those? Like there should be a lot of parents in a lot in the waiting room crying because like, all these like 10 kids just got killed uh you know so I, I feel like we could have used a little more exposition up top about like you know use that time at the hospital with the adults talking to each other about like jason Voorhees, how many people he's killed mrs Voorhees, like brian said why he's doing the murders and it's like you know they all you need is a parent to be like you know isn't this enough to satiate him for the death of his mother or you know like you just need one line to kind of sum it up here and it would have been the perfect place yeah, but I mean, truth be told, Jason's motivation is not terribly complicated either. I mean, it's easy for me to to, to take it all for granted because I've seen these movies a bunch of times, right? So uh, if they didn't do it properly uh, in in this, you know, I, I may have missed it. But I mean, he's a kid who was drowned in a lake and then he saw somebody murder his mother. And like, that's kind of it. And then over time, okay. his motivation kind of evolves based on popular slasher ideas and tropes for example i think it's in jason x where he sees this like hologram simulation of two like virgin girls like having sex or getting naked and and, like that just pisses him off you know because but by then it had been well-worn territory that if you have sex or you do drugs in a horror film you gotta die so like they even made a joke about it at that point Two, two, two girls get naked and he's got to he's got to kill them. So his motivations never really that complicated. You know, it's it's just kind of all stemming from the fact that he was abused as a child and then some counselors killed his mother. So yeah. anybody who comes to that comes to that neck of the woods and is hanging around Crystal Lake, they're all kind of fair game for no reason more than that. And, and that's yeah. good enough for me too. like I, I wasn't watching him and, and like. Oh my God! Why would he do that? It wasn't. Like <laughs> I would, it was more like I was curious if I was yeah. missing something. But if that's the explanation, like I, I'm good with that. There's also like I would have had more questions if he was setting like elaborate traps to get a specific person or whatever. But that's mm-hmm. kind of not what we're seeing here. So yeah, um, I, you know, I'm with it. Yeah, the most we see here him do is sort of like put everybody on display at the end for for like a minute or two, right? Like, but other than that, uh, he's not really like using many more tools in any way but to kill you. Uh, but I also think you know Dan raised a pretty interesting point about like Jason being a stand-in for whatever like the social mores at the time kind of reflect upon you know the ideas of horror and stuff like i believe friday the 13th you know was sort of manifested as like modern morality plays and things like that you know like 
it sort of is because of this series that that whole idea of if you have sex you're murdered you know that didn't come from this but it definitely was sort of like preached in in this series you know and i think reinforced for sure yeah yeah absolutely and a lot of that with the sex and the drugs and 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 everything and you know you could even stem it up to like satanic panic kind of stuff and not that it's in line with that but it's sort of talking about like oh that's kind of like the establishment at this point and what the movie is trying to sort of stand up against and and that kind of representation at the time and things and so i think it's interesting that jason is like um the metaphor you know like he doesn't really need that much of a backstory you Mm. just give him like one or two little main points and then he's like off and running for the rest of his creation you could just sort of like tool him to whatever you need to i think better and better definitely better than freddie and probably easier than michael myers just just because michael myers is sort of now attached to so much more lore than i think he needs right you know aside from just originally being this psycho kid boogeyman now there's like all this convoluted stuff that's been dropped and all these sort of like pickup sequels and things that it's become hard to decipher whereas jason has always just been the easiest to understand, I think. In yeah, that, it's a, in that sense. I, I remember, like when when John Carpenter released Halloween, a lot of people started picking up on these things. Like you know, Jamie Lee Curtis got to live because she doesn't have sex in the movie. Every other person who dies has sex, or they're smoking weed, or or whatever. And John Carpenter like vehemently opposed that that whole theory. He said, you know, it's like she lived at the end of the movie because, you know, she was busy doing other things. She was taking care of kids. You know, she didn't have time to be doing drugs or having sex. So this whole idea that that's why she survived, that she just was this virginal uh, character. And that was supposed to be some kind of, that was supposed to be symbolic in some way. So it was total nonsense. Meanwhile, you got Friday the 13th. That's like, yeah, well, that's fine with us. You know, like we can roll with that. And they sort of <laughs> lean, they, they lean into the, um, those sort of tropes and uh, sort of, uh, you know, the metaphorical nonsense, so to speak. And, uh, and in my opinion, I think that makes them more fun because Halloween takes itself uh, way too seriously at times. And it goes into directions that I don't entirely love, but Friday always kind of enjoys being this sort of cheaper base level uh, slasher franchise. If that's, yeah 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 it's more pure exploitation right yeah, like it's for sure. just that's all it really wants to do and it has no aspirations of being high art or anything like that whereas i feel you're right like sometimes halloween feels a bit pretentious at times and things and and freddie just like he's he just seems like a no pun intended but like a nightmare to write like those movies as much as i love them and stuff they're just so much visual of gaggery and all that kind of thing going on it just seems like they just feel harder to, to to construct and pull off whereas like this is like such a perfect setting for what you need to say keep it simple stupid <laughs> i do have another question franchise wise a lot of naked ladies in this movie. A lot of yes. naked ladies. Yeah. Is, <laughs> a lot of skinny is, dipping. <laughs> is that something that's common in this franchise, or is this one like more naked than uh, the other ones? Uh, this feels maybe like peak nudity, right? Yeah. Like I feel like this is the most it goes. It gets here again, but like I don't feel like it ever goes further than this, right? Like it's always been sort of more cheeky. If anything, you know, that's where it kind of comes into being more of like a um 
I don't know, like a losing it than a Friday the 13th, right? Is with like the sex comedy type of, like that's pretty much the only levity in these movies is the sex. Is that the sex yeah. is supposed to be fun and funny and that's what all the jokes are sort of about and, and losing it and, and, you know, being virgins and stuff like that's, you know, at least up, up until like, you know, we start going to like, we get psychics in, in Manhattan in space. Like that's where the levity is going to sort of come in. And it's also very thematically relevant, which I like too, you know, they're staying within those sort of, you know, constructs and things that they want to talk about. Yeah. And, and I know that, um, by Jason lives part six, that's a, so that's an R rate. I mean, they're all rated R, but that one is pretty, uh, pretty, uh, noteworthy for having almost PG 13 levels of, or maybe not violence, but like nudity, you know, you don't see any full nudity in that one. Um, there's really no yeah, it's very no soft sexuality. Yeah, yeah, it's it's strange how they get from this, which is which again feels like a very uh, like a high watermark for uh, nudity in this franchise to like no real nudity two movies later. I don't know what the hell's going on here, but when you say <laughs> when, when, when you when you say it out loud, uh, this one definitely does feel like it's way more gratuitous than some of the others. But but also in the other ones, like down the line, it feels like they know when and how they're using the nudity in weird ways. Like I think part nine opens with a trap to trap Jason with like a woman taking a shower and then sort of like running around in a towel. And the whole idea is like she's a FBI agent and like it's a trap and stuff. So like they use they still get naked, but they, they it's more tongue in cheek. I think like this is definitely more gratuitous uh then it's gonna get down the line but it definitely built to this too like if you watch the movies they're not devoid of boobs right like there's no. boobs and a lot of it um what's kind of interesting about this is there's like male nudity too right it feels a little more evened out is like kind of the fun part about it too so yeah it's it's just part of the franchise well there's even a moment where uh, one of the characters finds like the old-fashioned silent film porn and we yes. see a lot of that as well so it's 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 a lot I, I'm not complaining or anything like that. I was just curious if this was part for the course or not. So thank you for answering that one. Yeah, I think another big thing, too, is that these were primarily sort of summer camp kind of thing. Or not, if not summer camp, like summer, they took place in the summer. So, like, mm -hmm. people were just more prone to sort of lose clothing more easily, I think, as well. Like, whether you were able to skinny dip, you know, or not, that kind of thing. So before we talk about uh, just our big conclusion, obviously. What were some of the moments that you really enjoyed um, in this film that we haven't really talked about yet? So a lot of things go out out of windows in this, right? I think <laughs> um, <laughs> we get two girls and a dog go out of a window in this movie, if I'm not mistaken. Like, Jason definitely pulls a girl out of a window and she goes flying. We don't see, like, the full scene. It's very confusing, but the dog is thrown out the window, and dear Lord, that poor stunt dog or whatever Oof. was going on in that shot did not look cool. That's why I cool. hate the director. <laughs> um, and uh, we, then, also get, we also get somebody that goes, like, into a window. Right, right. From so outside. Four. Yeah. <laughs> but then, guys, what my favorite stunt is when Trish throws herself out of a second-story window yes. to get away from Jason and just, like, almost kills herself doing it. I was like, that's probably the most realistic thing I've seen in a horror movie is someone just so panicked they're like what do i do what do i do and they just jump out of a window i i, I reacted to that in real time i was watching this with my girlfriend and, and i was like man that's gonna hurt tomorrow 
I was thinking, I was, I was thinking of you as I watched it, Mike. I was like, there's the big stunt. <laughs> yeah, I, I like, I mean, this, this movie has some of the best kills in the whole franchise. I mean, take yeah. your pick. Because some of them, some of them have just okay kills. There's usually one showstopper kill in all of them, but some of them have a higher, you know, um, higher percentage of like really good ones. I think this is one of those that's that's really like chock full of really good kills. I don't know that I could pick one, but the one that stood out to me because the director uh, Joe Zito and um, with Tom Savini doing makeup. So I told you that, you know, they both worked on The Prowler. We've, we've discussed that. There's a scene in The Prowler where a girl is getting ready to go to this, um, like, dance nearby. It's like they're all college girls. And she's in the shower. And the killer comes into the bathroom. And now the killer in The Prowler is this old World War II, like, veteran who was broken up with while he was overseas. And, like, he comes back and just murders the girl who broke up with him. And then that's the legend, right? So... The, the killer in that is this like spurned soldier and he kills people with a pickaxe or not a pickaxe, um, a pitchfork. And there's this great moment gotcha. where the girl in the shower, you know, he like opens up the door and just jabs her right in the middle of the, uh, of her abdomen with, um, with the pitchfork. And I, and then I'm watching this and I had like forgotten there's a shower kill. And I was like, Oh, this makes perfect sense. They got Joe Zito. They got Tom Savini. They really like killing people in the shower. So that particular shower kill stood out for me for that reason. I really love that. But yeah, I think I think the kills in this are excellent. And I think the yeah maybe the best in the franchise overall. What's the yeah. uh, body yeah. count overall? Does anyone have that? I think it's back? thirteen. I think it, it's it's Ooh. two people at the hospital, the six kids in the car, the two twins, Rob, the failed Jason Hunter, the mom, which I don't think we ever see her body, and I think. That's it. And the dog? Are we counting the dog? Has anyone been tallying that up? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh. I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> there are 14 total deaths, including Jason Voorhees. So, Mike, you're, okay. you're, you're pretty much spot on. And that's not counting the dog. 
Okay. And that is, <laughs> so the source I found also included uh, the banana that is crushed by the hitchhiker oh. as a non-counted oh, yeah. death. <laughs> hitchhiker. I think I missed her. I've got a couple of deaths I want to mention. So first, Dan, you mentioned the hospital in the beginning. That's a great one where the guy gets his neck sawed and then twisted around. And then twisted around. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that extra twist was like, oh, dough. That's all right. I love when Teddy gets killed, where he's watching the pornos, and then he gets stabbed from behind uh, through the projector screen. Yeah, that was my favorite one. Yeah, because it's like the Sam Raimi shot from Evil yes. Dead almost, where you get like the blood dripping on the screen, and it's just, you know, like they literally stab the movie screen, and it's being, you know the blood dripping through it so like that would have been really cool to see on the big screen in a movie theater but the death that just had me howling because i i forget this one every time and it's not that it's even that violent or great it's just in context it made me laugh so hard okay so it's down to the jarvis brother and sister and rob right rob is like running around looking for his sister who was killed by jason and he's out there in the woods as like the jason hunter right and you think he's a badass because like he knows about jason and he's hunting him and you think he's gonna kick his ass and stuff and so they're they're running around at the end of the movie and all of a sudden like jason pops up in the basement and just grabs rob and just pummels him to death just gives him like the hardest thrashing it, it looks like when bane is punching batman at the end fight of the dark knight rises he's just like <laughs> boom 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 it's just so funny to me because rob is like go run get away don't worry about me and he's like, i'm not worried about you <laughs> like thanks for taking the hit but also he's supposed to be like the Jason Hunter, you know, he's like Rob the badass. Like, no, you're not. I'm sorry. That that just I laughed so hard this time watching that part. I also love Crispin Glover looking for the goddamn corkscrew and then you know getting it right in his <laughs> hand, cleaver to the face. There's some good effects when they're fighting Jason at the end, like when they split his hand open. Yes, that's really cool. Where they hit him over the head with the television. That's really cool. <laughs> But let's not yeah. forget the uh, maybe maybe the most iconic death in the whole movie, which is uh, Jason Voorhees, who is maskless, and uh, yeah. his, his face design has evolved since the last. Even though this takes place like right after Part Three, uh, his face looks different. Right. He looks more mutated here, but that's also yeah. because we have a different uh, makeup artist doing the work. But I and love... that, by the way, Tom Savini, that was very important to him. He was. Apparently, I read he was upset that the other people hadn't showed Jason aging, and that was really big to him. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And he definitely made up for that yeah. here, because Jason looks amazing. He looks gross, and yeah, and, and I love the, the, the bit where his face slides down the machete. It's oh, such, so such, brutal. Such a great gag, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad they made him like a freaky face looking kind of Jason Monster Man kind of thing. Uh, they were sort of trying to go there in the last movie, but he just ended up looking kind of like Sloth from Goonies, yes. right? You yeah. know, and like you just needed more of this, whatever they brought. He looks like the mummy almost or something like, yeah, I like that idea that he's sort of rotting away or, or decrepit, uh, kind of Crypt Keeper's older buff brother sort of situation going on there. Um, and wonderful gag with the machete at the end there too uh so let's uh, let's set up this ending scene then because this is uh just the whole evolution of cory feldman's character here is so and cool to me uh 
How, how, how do we get to this kind of moment where he becomes the hero? It's very strange. Like, I've never really thought about it until this viewing. Like, I always kind of went with it. But, and I don't want to say, like, it's it's bad or anything. But, like, it just didn't make as much sense to me this time. You know, like, if we're saying, how did he get from point A to point B? And also, like, his idea. So, like, we should probably explain what his idea is, right? So, like, as they're being chased around by Jason... You know, him being a creature effects master decides like, oh, I'm going to make myself up to look like Jason as a young boy and sort of, I guess, try and reason with him for a minute or two until my sister can grab a machete or something and chop him to bits and stuff. Like, I think that's his thought process. Right. But you're right. Like, it's never specifically sort of like, oh, Eureka, like, I've got an idea. Like, I'm going to do this to take care of the situation. Something similar was done at the end of part two, where the girl finds Jason's mom's sweater and pretends to be his mom. I'm a little like, I understand what they're going for here, too, but I'm a little confused as to like how we get here as well. Uh, I think part of it also has to do with maybe setting up Tommy to be, you know, to go on into the next movies, right? To be our sort of main character from now on or something like that. <laughs> I'd, I'd be interested to sort of work this out together or to hear what Dan has to say about this. Yeah, I, I mean, Tommy Jarvis as a character is is not your typical child character in a horror movie in, in that he's not really shy around anybody. You know, it's not like he has this moment where he just becomes brave. I think he's always kind mm-hmm. of proactive and, and, and precocious and um, he's, he's able to identify what's going on around him at all times. And I think that in that moment, he wasn't, he was like sort of in, um, in survival mode, you know, he wasn't really thinking about, you know, getting to safety. He was thinking about saving his sister and, and, and stopping the problem as opposed to escaping it. Yeah. I think, I just think in that moment, he, like I bought that he would choose to be heroic as opposed to run away. He didn't strike me as the kid who's going to run away. And, and because we've we've set up that he's really into makeup, it, you know, it made perfect sense to me that this is where he would he would go, especially considering the finale of part two. I love that he also, by that same token, doesn't stumble on this. Right. Like I've seen right. in so many horror films where someone just stumbles on the way to kill the killer or something. No, he does it with conviction out of survival. Yes, but with conviction. Yeah. And like, how could he have done it if he wasn't a 
sort of um, mask maker kid like what if they did you know like you know what's he gonna just come down the stairs with some new contraption some gadget that he made and be like distract jason like <laughs> like because that's the thing like it would just work in general if he was just like jason over here and like you know jason would probably go for him right like he's just this this force you know he'll go like oh over here fine over there cool and like i feel like there's other ways to get his attention there just seemed to be sort of a, a more more of a reason behind him transforming his himself to look like young jason and i think that they set that you're right they did set that up well by like showing all the masks and all that so even by having his mom in the beginning of the movie say when are you going to get a haircut and him coming down the stairs bald uh and stuff you know so like it works like on its own terms throughout the movie's rules and stuff you know like that's the thing maybe i was thinking too hard about it trying to you know like i said find that that scene or that moment where he comes up with the idea but no it's just like again another nice organic sort of thing about the character that makes him feel more real it's like that old uh rule where if you introduce a kid who's really good at makeup you have to have him save the day with it at the end or something yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean that makes sense right like or it has to be used somehow right so just i kind of spoiled a little bit of the movie for myself while watching it i uh was watching and i was like let me also do the artwork that i do for like instagram and stuff so i just put Corey feldman you know friday the 13th whatever so I saw this image and I'm like, oh my God. And then I like, I didn't want to look and see what it was. I assumed that Jason had like possessed him somehow and that he just became, you know, I don't know, somehow like he became Jason's incarnation or whatever. And I was happy to see that like that was not necessarily the case, that it was like his idea here. I thought it was like super awesome. Even though the the makeup thing is teased at the beginning. I still was surprised with the outcome and and pleasantly surprised. Cool. Yeah. I mean, that's a very, also it's a very uh, like creepy image at the end when like Corey Feldman turns to the camera and like stares at you with those dead eyes, those dead life eyes. Like you're just like, Whoa. Okay. Like it harkens back to the way Jason did look, but it also sort of is, um, commanding on its own you know like i don't know i it's very unsettling on its own and stuff too so yeah i'm glad i'm glad you you uh were into it given what we know uh now like it becomes uh uh, you know a trilogy for this character it's hard to imagine what audiences felt with that final image in 1984 you know this is the final chapter we've got a kid but i mean it wouldn't be the first movie that uh sort of hinted at the future of a franchise right i guess so maybe it's not that weird yeah i remember when my brother came over in the theater i think his words were tommy's the new jason and i was like i have no idea what that means you know? <laughs> <laughs> but now i do <laughs> so even he realized that this was not the final chapter yeah no by no means i don't think so <laughs> he couldn't get one over on him like that <laughs> anything else in the movie that you guys really uh wanted to talk about that you think we might have missed or Nothing super significant. I will say I saw I caught something for the first time with this rewatch. It's just a tiny little detail, but I I noticed it in the in the hospital sequence when that uh, I don't know if he's a doctor or if he's just an orderly or whoever the hell that guy is. When he eventually gets to putting Jason into that like refrigerated drawer, 
you know, and then he goes to shut the door to get back to his um, the, the workout video. Uh, just as he's shutting the door, there's like the, the you can see Jason's breath come through the, the, the blanket that's over his face. Oh, wow. That's cool. Oh, and nice, I was like, nice. oh, shit. I never caught that detail. I mean, like we know Jason's going to be he's not dead. You know, he's going to be back. But like just I love that little suggestion there because it's so easy to miss. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I'll look out for that next time. I just kind of wish maybe we saw what happened to the mom um if, i'm not wrong in that we don't see her body right like she just no i almost thought that like i because it's been a while since i had watched this one i almost thought she was going to pop up again later but i think mm-hmm. the reason we don't see her die is because she's part of like that central core family dynamic yes uh, yeah she, yeah and so we don't get to see her die but all of these teenagers who transgress for you know a lack of a better word and <laughs> yep. you know we, we get to see all of their deaths but mom's kind of the one innocent so to speak yeah uh, and so we were denied that hmm, that's interesting yeah i was thinking that too i was like jason at this point i mean he had to get out of that hospital so he killed who he needed but right now you know he's just got teen bloodlust so like or at least that's what the movies are doing so like yeah we don't want to see him kill a mom like that's not part of the body count right like <laughs> yeah i'd rather not but sure enough they show him throw a damn dog out the window which i wish they just kind of cut that one shot like there's really yeah. no need to have that in the in this movie anymore it's just so bizarre too we're not a fan miss of it. that here no not a, not a fan you gotta that that goes on the um the warning for the episode right <laughs> <laughs> i should have that i should have that all right guys who was the movie made for my first question these days who do you think the intended audience for this film was uh, i mean like teenagers horny teens right like <laughs> <laughs> well by now there was a there by now there were fans you know by now there there's a fan base there's a horror uh there's like a new horror culture emerging in America and around the world, I guess, really. And yeah, so like this, everyone's probably going to this, you know, this one probably by putting the final chapter on it, you probably got people going to this that generally never probably went to horror movies in theaters, you know, Um, especially now that VHS was so big, like they, you know, wouldn't be cut. Oh, it wouldn't be cut dead at a horror movie, but I'll rent it at home and watch it, you know, (laughs) uh, in the privacy of my own home. But I feel like, you know, you got suits showing, you got yuppies coming to this, like everybody at the time probably showed up for this one, which is why, you know, it made so much damn money, right? Like it cost a million, made, you know, way more than that. So I think, I think they, they made it for the fans as like a goodbye, like a love letter, Mm. but I think everybody ended up showing up for this one. Yeah. and, And the franchise had already sort of acknowledged the fans. I mean, there were well-established fans by this point, as Mike said. I believe it's in part three. Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a there's a, a shot in part three where a character is reading Fangoria magazine, right? And, yeah, and, yeah. and like blood drips down from the ceiling in onto the pages of Fango. So, like, I think that was a clear nod to the fact that there were a lot of horror fans out there, and they were like, "We see you." So, yeah, by this point, definitely that crowd for sure. And I think Mike's on to something with the fact that because it was supposed to be the last one that a lot of people would have come to see it out of curiosity. Interesting. I I like that a lot. Okay. Most likely to succeed. Uh, This is a character superlative wise. Essentially, I like to break it down as like who won the movie? What character won the movie? Dan, why don't you go first on this one? Well, I mean, it seems kind of obvious at this point, but I'll just say it. Uh, I think Corey Feldman as Tommy Jarvis. Without Tommy Jarvis in this movie, I think everybody uh, everybody dies. 
Um, but because of his presence here, we uh, we get a few survivors and Jason dies, maybe. So, yeah, I think without a doubt, Tommy Jarvis is the MVP. So I, I will sort of half agree with that. I believe um, I believe everyone probably would not have survived if not for Tommy Jarvis. However, having seen what happens to the dear boy, he is not winning. He does not. <laughs> he does not win. <laughs> um, he goes on to have like a very rough couple of years and past part six. We never hear from him again, but I can't imagine he's living a good life um, of like rest and quiet or anything like that. I'm going to have to go with Trish, his sister. She got out of there. She's alive. We never hear from her again. Suppose I bet she moved out of New Jersey, got made herself a family somewhere where she could see where there are no trees or forests and you see everyone coming from a mile away. <laughs> you know, she's living on a on a farm like Rambo with the damn tunnels under her house and everything. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> okay, Wooderson Award. Uh, Mike, you go first on this one. Is there a character who you would have liked to see more of in the film? I would say maybe Rob, the Jason Hunter. Uh, I'd like to maybe... I mean, actually, no. He's in it quite a lot. Uh, maybe the Hitchhiker. Like, it could be cool if the Hitchhiker <laughs> survived a little bit longer. I don't know. Again, there's really, like, everyone was pretty well used to their capacity in this movie, right? Like, yeah, I don't really have, like a like a like, a serious answer to that. Hmm. I do feel like everybody, like like Mike said, was was used uh, really well. Um, I don't I don't think like I like like I said, it could have been really clunky having this tight knit family alongside a group of horny teenagers. <laughs> but I think the the, the, the movie really um, balances that in, in a really great way. I don't yeah I don't know that I have a, a good solid answer to that. Uh, so by default, do you not have an answer as well for the Long Duck Dong Award, the character whose omission <laughs> would make the film better? Oh man. Yeah, well there's definitely no one you got to get rid of here. Like this movie doesn't feel offensive in ways that, you know, even Tom Hanks movies do when you go back and revisit some of them. You know what I'm saying? Like there's nothing like they don't there's nothing really like well, problematic with this movie. You know what I'm saying? Like none of the characters feel like they're imp- impeding on any sort of racial stereotypes or anything like that. I mean, maybe the one thing is there are all just a bunch of white kids having fun, right? Like I know like we have had some more sort of diversity in other Friday the 13th movies. So I think I did notice that in this one to just be like, oh, it's kind of funny how like yeah, it's a, it's a white party. Yeah, there, there, there's there's nobody that needs to be taken out of this movie in order to make it better. If I were to say anything, I might say that the twins are superfluous. <laughs> um, I read somewhere that Camilla Moore, who plays Tina, had auditioned to, uh, to be in the movie. And then when the producers found out she was a twin, they cast both sisters as twin sisters. Uh. So, like, they don't – they're not the most um, – organic characters they just sort of show up and and become extra characters within this group of of kids so would the movie be better without them not necessarily i just think that maybe they're they're just adding bodies to the to the overall death count you know what i mean but i don't think i don't think they're offensive you know i don't think they're worthy of a long duck dong award at all just that they're superfluous. But, but a little extra, yeah. No, I, I hear you, I hear you, but I think you guys are right overall. There's not too much fat 
that theoretically you would trim from this film for any reason, really. And it's a yeah. nice length, you know? I know horror films are usually yeah. this short in this era, but still, it, the pacing felt really good here, so there was there's, nothing like that either. I regret to inform you that there's a bunch of extras I did not get to on the DVD and stuff, but there's, you know, something like a lost ending on here and all kinds of things. Like, there seems to have been... and I. I they did mention in the audio commentary they kind of did cut stuff out of this, but it was all at the top. It was all going to the hospital. I think there was an accident involving the ambulance or something, and there was more at the hospital. But like as far as you know, when they're off and running at Crystal Lake, like it's all there for what was planned, is what they were saying. Gotcha, gotcha. Good to know. Okay, Cameron Fry Award. Did any of the teens not look like teens in your mind? Did anyone look too old to be a teenager? Uh, not to me. I think they did a smart thing by not saying that Rob was a teenager because he comes on the scene and he kind of does look a little bit older. And I was like, all right, I'm glad he wasn't in the original group of kids in the car on the way to the lake and stuff that he showed up. And it's, you know, he's sort of in his own movie. No, I, I pretty much think everybody uh, fit, the, fit the part age-wise. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The group of kids might have been like, college students they don't really establish that they're explicitly uh in high school uh so maybe they're a little bit old for high school but i still buy them as you know a group of teens for sure i mean if i were gonna put my finger on it i think they were like maybe just graduated high school going into college like that's kind of the um the vibe i was getting because i you know I, i like to analyze this i like to make sure we're watching actual teen films or not and i figured if they that they wouldn't be college students because this seems like the summer right and like college isn't really in session so if anything maybe they're reunited high school friends anyway or something along those lines but they're definitely in that teenage uh genre so i think i think we're good there i i thought they were seniors because on the car ride they Mm. they're talking about like crispin glover's ex-girlfriend or whatever you're right right. you're right i that's that was my thing that they just like rented this house for the weekend or or spring break or something gotcha that makes sense um okay so the critical response to this doesn't mirror i think fans response to this uh go figure (laughs) rotten tomatoes (laughs) 20 percent positive rating from critics only 51 percent from the audience which uh kind of expected higher in terms of letterboxd 3.2 out of five which is pretty good but it seems like you guys might have a different take here so very curious we don't care about those things here on high school slumber party we grade with the old report card the red pen the a plus to f scale mike why don't you go first on this one what will you grade Friday the thirteenth, the final chapter. I've been saving it up for a while, Brian. I've been I've been stopping myself from from just giving these out left and right so that they finally mean something when I do. But I'm gonna have to give this an A. I mean, I really like this movie, and not just for like a Friday the thirteenth movie. Like I feel like you could take Jason out of this and replace it with a with like a Night Stalker of some kind, and it would still work, you know. And I or you could take a lot of the teens out of this set it in the suburbs about a family and you've got more of like a sort of like an elevated horror movie or something i don't know but like i really like this i think it it um it's one of the best in the series i'm kind of surprised by all of those low grades that you mentioned just now i would have thought that sort of the the um the community would have rallied around those websites and kind of boosted its um 
you know, its stock a little better or a little more over the years or whatever. But, uh, you know, not going to not going to go arguing with any of that too hard. But I, yeah, I love this movie. I think it's a lot of fun. I love this franchise. And yeah, I given him an A. How about you, Dan? I'm going to give this one um, or I'm going to do what some of the uh, some of our favorite teachers did in high school. I'm going to grade this one on a curve. And I'm going to give this one an A minus. And I think the minus will be due to the fact that because there were so many of these, uh, you know, extra characters, particularly these these twin sisters, there, there's some character motivation that doesn't totally make sense to me. But to be fair to the movie, I mean, that's sort of what you're signing up for with a Friday the 13th slasher movie, you know, like any slasher movie from the 80s kids are doing stuff that none of it makes sense i had a little bit of trouble understanding some of the the dynamics going on among some of these characters but like aside from that i think this movie delivers just about everywhere else it it needs to um you know i mean we're not watching this movie for plot but it but it has for some pretty solid uh, a pretty solid screenplay all things considered it's got some great kills jason uh looks better here than in most uh films I love that uh, the movie doesn't have like a final girl. It has a final sister and brother and that the youngest of the two is the hero. Like it's breaking conventions there. Yeah. I think overall, like I said, at the sort of the top of the show, I think this has everything anyone could want and it does everything pretty well for the genre. And I think it's probably the best Friday the 13th movie, all things considered. Good grades all around. I'm loving it though. I, would have probably given this movie a B plus because I like everything in here. But, you know, I'm not a big horror guy. I don't really know the franchise. But I'm going to also use a curve here and bump this up to an A- minus because we are in our two Corey series. And the amount of Feldman in this and how important he is in this movie, I'm bumping it up to that A- minus because I loved that. So Yeah. <laughs> a- A's, versions of A's all around here. It's awesome. Okay, sleeping bag question. If we're all at our high school slumber party together, we all have themed Friday the 13th, the final chapter sleeping bags. What do these sleeping bags look like? And I'm going to go first this mm-hmm. time. I'm going to cut oh, you guys. okay. All right. I just want a white sleeping bag that looks like the projector screen, but with like that stab in it where like the zipper nice. is. Nice. And then, like, the blood oh. coming out of there, you know? So I awesome. thought of this while watching, so that's what I'm going with. I think for the first time, no sleeping bag for me, and I'll explain. Um, <laughs> Are you skinny you dipping, s- Mike? Well, no. I mean, I, ho- I, I hope to not, A, hope not to be sleeping alone in a Friday the 13th movie if I'm in one. <laughs> uh, no sleep. I hope not to be sleeping. We'll just say that. Um, if you know, like, your Friday the 13th movies down the line, um, Jason will pick you up in your sleeping bag and bash you against a tree That's until right. you are pulp. So no sleeping bag for me. No, thank you. I do not want to risk that happening. Not in this universe. So that's my answer. <laughs> okay. How about you, Dan? So I would like a sleeping bag that, hmm, how, how should I describe this? That has like a hood that sort of becomes Ooh. like a monster mask. You know, oh, I like uh, that. Okay, some, something that you can like maybe wear. You know how some sleeping bags or, or some like blankets roll up, and I, I don't know. I think it would be some sort of hybrid blanket sleeping bag, but I definitely want something that comes over the head that has like a monster face on it because, uh, like Tommy Jarvis, I also 
collect uh, monster masks. Would definitely need to incorporate that somehow. That's really cool. I love that as well. Great sleeping bags or even lack of sleeping bag <laughs> this time, guys. <laughs> Okay, Dan, I hope you prepare, because I know Mike actually did this time, as we were talking a little bit, <laughs> off air, and I know you got a bunch of choices, Mike, but the three of us were in the magical, magical blockbuster that defies space, time, logic even sometimes. Every movie that has ever existed in the history of time up until this point is there. We know we're renting Friday the 13th, the final chapter, and I'm going to ask you guys to pick at least two other films that we will, at least two other films that we will watch alongside this for our Friday the 13th final chapter themed slumber party. So, Mike, why don't you go first with your picks and then, Dan, you follow up. Okay. Um, so my, let's see, my first pick is another horror movie I thought of immediately because it has a little kid in it. Um, originally, it may have even been planned as like more geared towards sort of kids than it turned out to be uh and that is 1993's leprechaun (laughs) so uh leprechaun we all know it's got warwick davis and jennifer aniston but it's got this guy robert high gorman who used to be a pretty big child actor uh back in the day he was in a lot of stuff i remember him from a bunch of things he was the youngest and don't tell mom the babysitter's dead he fell off the roof okay that's how you know that guy yeah yeah, Rookie of the Year, Mr. Nanny, he's in Forever Young. Uh, like, he's in tons of stuff. So I thought of that movie while watching this a lot because it was one of the only other movies that predominantly kind of features, like, a hero kid that I that really came to mind. And that movie's also a lot of fun, you know? Like, I think that when they finished that movie, they realized they had something more than they were expecting, and they bumped up. Um, in reshoots, I think what I heard was they bumped up some of it so that it would be an R or at least a PG-13 or something. I don't know. So that's my first pick. My second pick, this is kind of an interesting pick. I think this was just released on Blu-ray after being out of print for a really long time, but Joey and I covered it really early on on Hanks for the Memories. Tom Hanks, He Knows You're Alone from 1980. Um, A horror thriller about this woman she's getting married and the people around her are being murdered and picked off one by one. And her best friend starts dating Tom Hanks in the movie, not Tom Hanks, but a character played by Tom (laughs) Hanks. (laughs) I figured figured. (laughs) the story goes, this is such a cool story that uh, Joey found out about this doing research is um, Tom Hanks was so likable on set that the director decided he couldn't kill him off. That his character Wooderson. had to live. A Wooderson Award <laughs> for him. Wow, good for him. Yeah, so so this movie is really easy to find now. Uh, just a few months ago, it was kind of difficult to track down. Uh, so he knows her alone is out there, and uh, it's a very. I think it's Hanks's very first movie role. So I think he was doing Bosom Buddies, but he had not done a feature film. So interesting, I'm not interesting. I'm not positive, but yeah, that's what's up. Great picks, Mike. Great picks. How about you, Dan? What are we renting? So uh, I didn't realize that I was preparing for this question over the weekend, but I was. Uh, You see, I knew knew that I was going to be watching this for uh, for the show. And uh, my girlfriend is also a a big horror fan as well. So so we had made that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, we had made uh, plans (laughs) to to watch. I mean, it has not always been the case, uh, but I got I got really lucky. So I made plans to watch it with her, and uh, also I was like, you know, let me let me use this as an opportunity to maybe throw in some other things. We'll we'll 
we'll do like a themed uh, triple feature, right? So I literally had this thought process um, as as I was preparing to to for this nice. weekend, and uh, I found two movies that she had not seen that sort of tie into a summer camp uh, slasher uh, theme. And the first one that we watched uh, was an old movie. I can't remember what year it came out. But uh, it's called The Burning. The Burning. Oh, okay. And wow, I haven't heard of that in a long time. Yeah, it came out in 1981. It's got a, a actually a pretty impressive cast. Uh, it's got Brian Backer from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, oh, cool. Mark, Mark Ratner. Jason Alexander is in it. Wow. Ho- Holly Hunter is in it. And, uh, I mean, she's got a very small role. Uh, Fisher Stevens also is in that cast. Wow. So yeah, I would definitely recommend The Burning. It's a one and done standalone slasher. It's like ninety minutes, so it's lean and mean. And it actually has uh, uh its or like the story origins come from like a, a New Jersey legend uh, of a of a of a character named Cropsey. Yeah, definitely recommend that. And then the second movie that we watched, in addition to uh, Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter was uh, an, an infamous classic, uh, Sleepaway Camp. Oh yes, um, great, and, great, yeah, great picks. Yeah, a Sleepaway Camp still is one of the most entertaining uh, sla- campground slasher films that I've seen, and uh, you know the twist. You know, it rubs some people the wrong way these days. Uh, some people defend it. You know, I think it can go either way. If you're not familiar with the twist, uh, don't spoil it for yourself. Just watch the movie. Yeah, I think uh, all things considered, there's more about it that is uh, excellent than uh, than than not. So, um, also, it's just one of those infamous films that if you've a lot of people have heard about it, if you haven't seen it, you should just at least check it out so you know what everybody's talking about. But some great kills in that as well. Very thematic. I love it. That's so great. None of you decided to go with a vintage pornography film as your rental, <laughs> no, which, which I'm okay okay with. But uh, <laughs> yeah, great picks all around, guys. Really, really appreciate it. So now, uh, you know, first, of all, first I want to thank you for sharing this, not just this film, but this series with me, because, uh, you know, I'm very curious now for some other Friday the 13th films I can watch. But uh, before we get out of here, Plug what you want to plug, especially, once again, the show that you guys have been, uh, you know, going along with and doing a great job on, The Monsters That Made Us. Yeah, so, I mean, that's really the only thing that I have to plug. I'm not in really, uh, I don't really have any other creative outlets. I'm not writing anything. Uh, The podcast is really my thing right now. But, uh, yeah, Mike and I, as we established, host The Monsters That Made Us, also on the Cage Club Podcast Network. We uh, we celebrate all of the uh, spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. We get uh, we get deep into the pre-production mishaps and and uh, personnel changes and casting what ifs and uh, you know all that backstage drama that was happening during the production of these films. And then we actually get into the films themselves and and what we love so much about you know Dracula and Frankenstein and werewolves and mummies and, and and all of that so it's uh it's it's sort of a passion project for me it's one of the things i love most is these old uh these old characters these old mo- these old monsters so uh yeah it's it's a lot of fun to do and uh, we're on our i think we're releasing our eighth episode this month dracula's daughter comes out uh, when's this when's this episode gonna drop oh this episode is hot off the presses it'll be out on friday Oh, oh, same day. Okay, okay, so yeah, the day that this goes up, uh, we will be releasing our Dracula's Daughter episode. 
um, which, as Mike uh, mentioned, uh, picks up exactly like the moment after the original Dracula left off. And um, we get to discover or we, we discover that Dracula has uh, has a daughter who comes to England to um, reverse her vampire curse and uh, attempt to resist her uh, her uh, carnivorous urges. And um, you get to see the movie to find out if she does. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun to record that episode. And I hope everybody gets a chance to check it out. Awesome. Um, just travel suggestion for you guys ever. Um, if you f- if you find yourself in Salem, Massachusetts, for oh, yeah. for Halloween or for whenever, Count Orlock's Nightmare Gallery. So uh, this is a place that kind of it's kind of a wax museum of horror stuff, and it sounds cheesy, and it is a little cheesy, but the stuff they do with the old Universal monsters, even look, they go up until monsters of today, but. They have really, really great exhibits there, and like who, someone who's not so familiar with that stuff before your show, like everything I learned about it, I learned in that like little museum. And the dudes who work there are so knowledgeable on all that kind of stuff, um, so it's really cool. Like, and then I loved going there too because again, I'm a horror novice, but I got to see you know wax figures of movies that we even covered here on high school slumber party but it really starts with those original monsters so like i said if you ever find yourself in salem massachusetts check out count orlock's nightmare gallery silly name but makes sense yeah that's 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 really awesome and that's actually sort of um our goal with with the monsters that made us is not to just appeal to you know other mega fans of this material but to also make it accessible for people who maybe haven't seen a lot of these movies i know you know, a lot of people have seen Dracula. A lot of people have seen Frankenstein. But the majority of these movies are sequels. And uh, we get a lot of um, casting changes. I mean, Lon Chaney mm-hmm. Jr. plays just about every monster at one point or another, which is really exciting. And we're going to f- kind of learn how these things came to be. I've had multiple people tell me that, you know, they're not really into these movies or not as not as into them as I am. But they love listening to the show because they find they can... They can get into it. They, they love learning about these behind the scenes stories and how these movies were made. And then uh, they get to hear us talk about the stuff we love about the movie. So in a lot of ways, they feel like they've seen them, you know. So, that, I mean, that's a big goal of mine is to make it accessible. So, you know, I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad people who uh, are not as fanatical also get into it as well. For sure. And that's what I love about the show. You know, it's, it's so heavily researched in a good way, too. Like some of my favorite podcasts are uh, just things where I learn about things I don't know, you know? So that, that's that's a cool one. And my first exposure to the movies wasn't watching the movies. Like, I collected stamps as a kid. And oh, yeah. They have, they have that great stamp set with uh, the Wolfman, uh, Phantom of the Opera. And it's like, what? It, yeah, it's I'm looking it up now. It's Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman, Lon Chaney as the Phantom of the Opera, Bela Lugosi as Dracula, Boris Karloff as Frankenstein, and Boris Karloff as the mummy in stamp form. And I remember having those as a kid, and that's where I first kind of got into, or like really started to, oh, this is cool, kind of with that kind of stuff. So i uh, really, really happy for you guys, and uh, you know, it's a great show, so definitely, I'm plugging it now, so definitely check it out. <laughs> Hopefully uh, we'll get another stamp set one day. We could get Gloria Holden, um, who plays Dracula's daughter, on one of those stamps one day, you know? Or, yes, or maybe uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, it's um, weird. They didn't put any women on those stamps, so. <laughs> Shame on shout you, out, post office. Shout out John L. Balderston. That's also, right. just got to say that. And, and, <laughs> yeah. Big name that I learned doing the show. 
If you listen to um, our Dracula's Daughter episode, you'll get to hear Mike and I talk about why the Bride of Frankenstein is maybe not the most deserving uh, of the female characters to to become the icon. Because Gloria Holden certainly uh, holds her own in um, Dracula's Daughter. And uh, so we definitely love her. Great stuff. Can't wait, Mike. You've been yes. on a bunch of episodes in a row, twice a week for a couple of weeks now. I know. Anything you want to plug quickly or anything new? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, just real quick, third time's a charm. Uh, the third of every month is still going. I, I'm not, it's not going strong. It's just still going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is it, wait, 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 but isn't that, isn't that true of many third films as well? So you're thematic. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, pretty much. Let's see how long this can last. Um, Dan's on there a lot. He started as my horror consultant on that show. That's how we sort of, I feel like it spun off into Monsters That Made Us at one point or something to talk just um, horror in general. Brian's been on there, my unofficial co-host a lot, which is why I always have to uh, answer the call, like the female (laughs) Ghostbusters answer the call. Uh, Anytime um, he picks up the phone, I'm here for him on his show because he is there for me over there as well. The June episode of that show which comes out the 3rd of June, Star Trek Beyond with uh, my guest uh, Dan the Duke Hayden. Uh, we talk about space drifting, Idris Elba, good-looking cast, you know, really handsome and beautiful actors in that movie that uh, you just can't take your eyes off. So check it out. Awesome. Well, once again, guys, this was a pleasure. Uh, can't wait for the next Monsters That Made Us. And, uh, Mike, I'll talk to you again soon when we do another Corey <laughs> film. And, Dan, t- till the next time, thanks again. Wow, I really felt like that was a night off. That's nice. When you go twice a week, you're talking Corey Ham and Corey Feldman movies for what feels like forever. It's good to have a night off and have two guys who know their stuff chat away and me ask the questions. Those are some of my favorite podcast episodes to do. So once again, thank you, Mike Manzi. Thank you, Dan Cologne. We'll hear from Dan Cologne again soon, I'm sure. But Mike Manzi, he'll be back once again to talk another Corey film. This is a Feldman again, an early Feldman, but this one is a really big deal because a lot of people love this movie. The movie is, and your homework for this Memorial Day weekend, I feel like it's a good one, The Goonies. Steven Spielberg presents The Goonies, a Richard Donner film. Realize what we could do? Well, I don't want to go on any more of your crazy goonie adventures. Meet Mikey. I gotta go faster. Brand. Andy. Shame, shame. Oh, come on, Brand. Slip with the tongue. That's disgusting. No, I can't even look. Mouth. I got you. Now get out from behind her. You're ruining the pain. You're ruining my job. Stephanie. Data. Booty Bango. Ow. Yeah, isn't that neat? And Chunk. They call themselves the Goonies. They've stumbled onto a legend, but they're not alone. Chunk, I hope that was your stomach. No. That's the it. Sounds like Kong. Discover what they uncover. Lost map. Oh, the start of the tunnel. The secret caves. Hey, 
hidden clues. The treacherous traps. Just like that last prank about all those little creatures that multiply when you throw water on them. Take the oath. Join the adventure as Steven Spielberg presents The Goonies, a Richard Donner film. A beloved classic I haven't seen in a while. I'm curious how it has aged. I'm going to be honest with you. As I said, Mike will be here. But also, we have another guest, and we haven't had her on in a while. I'm so excited. She's part of the old hot dog crew. More on that on Monday. But Jordan, Poland, Clark will be here. And guess what? She's never seen the movie. So I think we're going to get three different perspectives on this one. I can't wait. Check out The Goonies wherever you get your podcast, Or, of course, at the flagship the home of our archive, cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. One more thing, guys. Class participation is a huge part of your grade. Thank you so much for participating on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Keep doing it. I love it. If you have a long weekend, enjoy your long weekend. Remember, guys, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss it. Later, dudes. It's over. Go home. Go.